I wonder what uh, lessons that God has taught some of you about prayer over the years. Uh, I suspect that all of you have learned, learned some things, that uh, different things that God has taught, taught you and revealed to you about uh, the nature of prayer and how we pray. Um, I think back to the very first prayer. I'm not sure if you can remember the first prayer that you ever prayed, but I remember the first prayer that was really a prayer for me. Uh, and it was a very simple prayer, but God answered it very simply and very wonderfully. And I, I was really just, I was amazed that actually God heard me and God, God did something in response to what I felt was a, uh, a strong and a meaningful prayer. And, uh, and, and I was really encouraged by that. But as I began to pray about other things, I learned that prayer was more complicated than just asking God for stuff and him just giving you stuff. Uh, I, I learned that, that, that prayer is, is more complicated. Sometimes you have to wait. Sometimes God says no. Uh, sometimes God uh, will, will change you as you're praying about things. Sometimes God will help you to see things in different ways. He will open your eyes to things that you didn't see before. I, I remember one of the one of the things that really taught me a lot about prayer was a prayer that I prayed when I came back from Japan for the first time. I'd been there for 10 months, and I had come home feeling that God had called me to return as a missionary. And I knew that that would involve going back to school and uh, preparing in, in many different ways. And so I came back knowing that I wasn't going to go straight into school. Jennifer and I were to be married six months later, and then I was going to take a year to, to really confirm that calling, and then I would start seminary if, if God continued to lead us that way. So I knew I had 18 months. So my prayer was that, number one, God would provide me a job. And uh, I didn't just ask God for a job. I asked God to provide me a really good job. And by that, I meant a high-paying job because I needed to save up as much money in 18 months as physically possible so that I would be able to... Uh, support myself through uh, my seminary education. Well, I learned that God had a different plan than I did. Uh, I began full-time job searching. Uh, there was research, resumes, uh, phone calls, interviews, all the stuff that you do, and I poured myself into it. And with, uh, for, for six months, that, that continued, and I was three weeks away from the wedding. And my father-in-law does what father-in-laws do when their unemployed future son-in-laws are uh, about to marry their daughter with three weeks out. He said, so, uh, Paul, what's your plan? What do you, you know? And at that point, I had been, I had uh, just been to my second interview for uh, an engineering position, and I felt there's, I'm totally qualified for this position. Um, I felt the interview had gone really well. And, and I'd been praying for six months, and I knew what, at the, to, to the extent that I'd learned anything from the Bible, I learned that God hears our prayers, he likes to test our faith, and he likes to spectacularly answer our prayers. And I was confident, and I responded very confidently to my father-in-law, you know what, I've just been in the second interview for this job, I, I think it's a shoe-in, uh, and I'm confident that God will provide. And the next week, I got a rejection letter. And I'm starting, it, it really kind of, 
startled me because I still believed that God was faithful. I still believed that God was good. I still believed that God heard my prayers. I just didn't know what he was doing. And I still needed to know what I was doing because I had been chasing down a number of leads and I'd kind of chased down most of my hot leads at that point. And physically, I needed to know, okay, what do I do? My first response was, well, I need to keep praying. And I, I did that, but soon after, I got a phone call. And the phone call was from my sister. <laughs> and she said something to the effect of, maybe my father-in-law called her and said, you know, can you give Paul a, uh, a, a call and, and uh, talk some sense into him? The essence of her conversation was, with me was, I think you need more urgency about finding a job and I think you need a different game plan. And I think God sent her to me. I uh, decided at that point, with three weeks out, I need, to, uh, I need to be more urgent here. I temporarily put my search for a long-term engineering position on hold, and I went and applied absolutely everywhere for a job. I applied in an ice cream shop. I applied in a bookstore. I applied in a maternity wear store. I have no idea why... <laughs> why they thought that I would, you know, single guy straight out of university, of course I'm going to be helping uh, pregnant women find uh, clothes and toys for their children. Uh, nobody hired me. Rejection, like, I just, I, nobody would hire me anywhere. With a week to go, I finally took a job. I finally got somebody that would say yes. And it was a job... Uh, Working, working in a call center, sell, uh, ca calling businesses for a legal publisher at the time. It was one of the clients. It became one of a series of clients that I worked on. And I, I told them, even as I took the job, hey, this is temporary. I'm still, I, I, I need the flexibility to keep looking for, for, for full-time work, but I'm just taking this temporary because I'm, I'm on the search for this engineering position and God's going to provide this so that I can have all of this cash that I can use towards my studies, and God never provided that job. God never provided that engineering job. God never answered the prayer the way I thought he was going to answer it, but he instead turned that job that he did give me into something that shaped my character, trained me in leadership. Uh, he, he did things in that position that I had, would never have dreamed of, and at the end of it all, I could say God was 100% in control. God answered all my prayers. He just didn't answer it the way I was expecting him to. And it was, it was incredibly encouraging to my faith and to what I felt he was doing in my life. But he taught me that there are things that we need to, things that we can do when we pray. That prayer is important, but there are things, there, that prayer is also a partnership. And the passage that was read for us this morning, I believe, teaches us some of those lessons. It teaches us what we can do when we pray. It's not a lesson about prayer. Prayer is important. But this, this passage doesn't teach about prayer per se. It teaches about what we can do to cooperate with God as we pray. And there are three characters in the story, and each of us, each of them fills in a piece of the puzzle. They, they give each of us a, each of them give us a, a hint about what we can do when we pray. 
So I'd like to begin with, uh, by looking at Naomi. If you haven't turned to Ruth chapter 3, please do. And I'll be uh, walking through that passage as I try to explain what our, uh, our readers read for us. Starting with Naomi, we learn that when you, need, when you have a need, don't be passive. Uh, it's easy to think that prayer is some kind of divine handoff, where you've got the problem, you say, here God, take care of this, and you wipe your hands of it and move on. That's not what, that's not what the Bible describes prayer to be. When you're in need, don't be passive. To bring everyone up to speed, uh, we've, been, we've uh, been in this book of Ruth for two weeks now, and we've learned that uh, Naomi's husband and sons have died. But Ruth, her daughter-in-law from Moab, has returned from that nation with her, and they are trying to make a go of it back in Bethlehem. As widows, they're penniless, they're vulnerable, uh, they, they don't have financial security, and they are without an heir. Last week, we saw Ruth go out and collect uh, leftover, leftover barley. She couldn't get a job, but she could walk behind the other people who did have a job and collect what they might have dropped behind or what they have missed on the way. And as she did that, she met a, uh, a relative named Boaz who was very kind with her, who was very generous towards her. He allowed her to glean freely through the field, and, and she was able to come home with, with quite a... Uh, quite a lot of, of, uh, of barley for, for just a day's work. The chapter ended having described that that's how the, the, harve- the rest of the harvest went on. The harvest was, was completed. And here you have uh, Ruth and Naomi, and you're thinking, so now what do they do? What, what does life look like for them now? So chapter 3 opens with Naomi answering that question. In verse 1, she says, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? And that's an interesting phrase because uh, in, in, in chapter 1, she actually prayed something very similar to that. She prayed in, had a prayer in chapter 1, and then she says these words in chapter 3. In chapter 1, verse 8, for instance, Naomi had said, May the Lord deal kindly with you, speaking to her daughter, daughter-in-law Ruth. But now in chapter 3, we see Naomi thinking, how can I deal kindly with my daughter-in-law? She'd prayed what God could do for her. Now she's thinking, okay, but what do I do, with, do for her? In chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi had said, the Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of a husband. But now in chapter 3, we see Naomi thinking, how could I provide rest for her? What can I do to seek rest for my daughter-in-law? and provide for her a husband. It's not that she's given up on God. It's not that she's given up on prayer. But she realizes that prayer is a partnership. There are things that we ask of God, but it's not, when we ask things of God, we're not giving up on our role or our responsibility in, in, in the partnership. Naomi prayed, and then she thought about what she could do. In verse 2, she mentions Boaz. And so far, he's been very generous and kind to Ruth. He's a good man. But although he's been generous and he's given her some grain, there's been no hint whatsoever of any kind of romantic kindling of feelings or emotions. There haven't been any offers of dates or certainly no proposals of marriage. In verse 3, she begins by telling her to 
wash and anoint herself and put on a, clo- uh, put on a cloak. Here is the mother-in-law decide, um, choosing to do what mother-in-laws do. She wants to give some advice. She's jumping in and she's saying, okay, I think my part is I could give Ruth a little bit of pointers. It's interesting what she, what she asks of her, though, the washing and anointing and the putting on the cloak. See, Boaz, up until this point, has seen that Ruth is a very diligent woman. She's a faithful woman. She's a hard worker. But she smells like a barn, and she's, that's a bit of a distraction. He realizes, she is, the mother-in-law says, no, no, you, you need a little bit of perfume. You need, a, need to anoint yourself. You need to clean up. He, every time he's seen you, you've been covered in mud and, and dust and, and grain. It's just not helping the, the, uh, the romantic feelings there. You need to have a bath. You know, uh, clean yourself up a little bit. She also asked her to put on a, clo- on a cloak. Again, up until now, she's had the burlap co- coveralls. She's been working hard. That's great outfit for out in the field. But Boaz isn't really seeing you as a romantic partner. He's not really, up until this point, had any kind of sense of you as marriage material. So Naomi tells her to get dressed, to wash, anoint, put on the cloak, and then to go down to the threshing floor where Boaz was winnowing the barley. She tells her to wait until she's finished eating and drinking, watch where he lies down, and then go and uncover his feet. Naomi was for Ruth, I think, a little bit what my sister was for me. Someone who would speak into a person's life and suggest a different strategy, offer a different perspective. When I was in Japan, there was a Canadian pastor who often would say to me, uh, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. He would regularly encourage me, if you find yourself spinning your wheels doing the same thing over and over again, it is good and right and helpful to pray, but you also might need to think about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And that was helpful advice to me. And, And it changed the way I prayed. When I prayed, it was a mental reminder to me. I, I just, out of habit, will say, and what's my, what's my part in this? How do you want me to be a part of the solution in this prayer that I'm bringing before you, God? Prayer is a partnership. Listen to how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 9.8. He says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see what he's saying in that verse? He's saying something different than what I had wanted him to say. See, what I wanted him to say was that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. That God is so able that you don't have to be involved. And he says, no, no, God is able. He is able to make all things abound to you so that in all things you, you will abound in every good work. You still have a part to play. But what happens is that God enables us. He empowers us and he makes our part effective. But our little story is just heating up. So let's turn now from Naomi to Ruth. She shows us that when you're in need, not to be compromised. 
not to, uh, not to, to just, just give in. When, because when we try to do our part, when we get involved, often if we have a great need, it's so easy to take shortcuts. It's t- so easy to do things that uh, will sacrifice God's will or our own integrity. When you're in need, don't be compromised. Now, I, I think we are supposed to learn from Naomi's proactive stance with regard to her prayer. I think that's helpful, and I think she has a, a, a role to play here. But I think that we also need to say that Naomi wasn't the most spiritual person you'd ever met. She was not the person that had a, a, a storehouse of biblical wisdom. In fact, she's about to put her daughter-in-law and Boaz in a very potentially compromising position. Naomi could have washed herself up, put on some perfume, gotten a nice dress, and gone to Boaz about a marriage proposal in the daytime. She could have gone to him in a more discreet way. But she was told to go to the threshing floor. And we don't, we don't do threshing floors anymore, so we don't really have a sense of it. But threshing floors had kind of a dangerous rap to them. They had a, a reputation about them that, that these were the places where some unsavory things could take place. The threshing floor was where men could be found at the end of a long season of harvest. It was a time, particularly if you were at, in the evening or in the nighttime on the threshing floor, you could see men who were drunk. You could see they, they were often frequented by prostitutes. You might see some dangerous liaisons. This was a somewhat compromising place to find yourself. It's clear that Boaz recognizes that in verse 14 because he warns, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Don't let people find out about this. They will draw the wrong conclusions. When we take initiative, it's easy to be unwise. I believe Ruth did some soul searching that night. She's been lurking in the shadows as the men have finished their work. She's seen them eat too much. She's seen some of them, no doubt, drink too much. And verse 7 says that Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. He, He wasn't drunk, but he was feeling good and satisfied. He was feeling happy and in good spirits. As he goes to lay down, Ruth watches him fall asleep, and then she sneaks over and she uncovers his feet. Now, this almost certainly was as close to a sleeping, unmarried man as Ruth has ever been in her life. And don't think for a minute that when she uncovered part of his clothing, she wasn't feeling butterflies and emotions uh, raging inside of her. In a modest Middle Eastern society, she would have felt incredible uh, temptation at this moment in her life. Her heart's racing as she lays down by his uncovered feet, waiting now for the breeze to wake him. And as she lies there on the threshing floor, now she starts to rehearse in her mind the next step in the plan. Do you remember what it was? In verse 4, Naomi had said, Go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And as she's lying there in the darkness, thinking of this man who is lying beside her, 
He's had a good meal. He's finished his work. He's had a nice drink. And she's thinking, he could ask me to do all kinds of things here. I could find myself in a lot of trouble, actually. Naomi's plan may result in an error, but not in the way that God would bless. Or Naomi's plan may result in Ruth's good reputation being destroyed right here, right on this night. Someone once said, never mistake temptation for opportunity. Ruth has some soul searching to do. Is she going to choose compromise or will she choose integrity? Hours pass. Boaz finally stirs and verse 8 puts us right in the scene with him on on the threshing floor and it says this, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he was like, wow, this never happens to me. I, I've never woken up in the middle of the night in some, some you know, dark, secluded corner and there's a woman there. Like, what, what's it? And she smells good. Again, this is as close as Boaz has probably ever been in his life to a sleeping woman in the middle of the night. And he is feeling the emotion of that moment. All he can manage at first is to start all, who, who are you? Like, he's just woken up and like, am, am, am I dreaming or what's going on here? Who, who, who are you? What is, what's happening? It's dark. He's just woken up. He's not used to seeing Ruth dressed to impress. Not used to uh, smelling her, smelling so good. He's, he's taking in all of the moment. And at this moment, knowing what, with Naomi's words still ringing in her ears, just do whatever he tells you to do. Ruth, in integrity, chooses to break with the mother-in-law's plan. She goes off the book. And she instead proposes marriage to Boaz. She's put her trust in God instead of her mother-in-law. She knows that, hey, this would be so much easier to just kind of go with the moment, but she chooses to go with God and to honor him. In verse 9, her exact words are, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, for you and I, spreading your wings over over someone may just sound like a a romantic approach. You know, that sounds like a kind of a nice poetic uh, turn. But this was technical language for a marriage proposal. She, she is communicating something very clear and it has nothing, there's nothing physical about it. There's nothing sensual about it. It is a clear marriage proposal. But here it's fascinating because in chapter 2, verse 12, Moaz had, uh, Boaz had used almost the exact same words in blessing Ruth, saying, A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, Boaz had prayed that God would provide refuge for Ruth. And now Ruth comes to him and says, would you be the one that would provide refuge for me? It's like saying bless you to someone. They they come back and they say, actually, I was kind of hoping that you could bless me. And there's there's kind of a way that you could do that. Would that be okay? And you're like, oh, I was just kind of saying bless you. I wasn't actually thinking of being a part of this. Like, 
It was just a thing. I wasn't, you know, but that, that's exactly what's happening here. Boaz is, has offered blessing and she's come looking for blessing. But there's more we need to notice in her carefully worded proposal here. I think she'd been rehearsing it all night, carefully planning. What am I going to say? What's going to happen? What am I going to do? See, Naomi was eager to see Ruth secure in a marriage. And Ruth could have just asked Boaz, hey, spread, spread, the corner, spread your, your wings over me. Spread the corner of your garment over me. And he would have married her. But she added another technical phrase. She said, for you're a redeemer. There's something special about you. There is a legal connection here. And she invoked a, uh, an Israelite law. She said, you're a redeemer. And in doing so, she asked him to take on certain obligations. A redeemer, there was a redeemer, the redeemer law asked a man to provide support and heir to a widow whose family line would, would otherwise disappear. And so Ruth didn't just ask for marriage. She could have done that for herself. But she said, will you marry me and do so as a kinsman redeemer? And so provide for my mother-in-law. Provide for her support and provide for her an heir. See, Naomi had tried to find Ruth a husband, but Ruth acted to provide Naomi with both support and a family line. Someone through whom uh, her name would uh, would not go extinguished. Her request shows devotion and kindness to her mother-in-law. Now, if she had just tried Naomi's plan and just said, hey, Boaz, like, what do you feel like doing tonight? She might have been sent home both rejected or, or disgraced. She instead decided to do what was right and even go beyond what was required. She had every right to assume, you know, I, I could lose everything tonight. I could be sent home and say, you know, I'm sorry, you know, you're a nice enough girl, but... I'm not, I'm not willing to take on that kind of obligation. But that's what she puts on the line. And in doing so, she won the commitment of a worthy man. In fact, in verse 11, he vows to do all that she's asked her and praises her as a worthy woman. She could have tried her luck with the younger men in town. But she shows her character in pursuing Boaz, both because he's worthy, but also because as a kinsman, he can fulfill obligations to her mother-in-law that other men couldn't. I also love the fact that the next morning when she returns home, Naomi asks her what happened. And I'm sure the mother-in-law is not sleeping that night, right? She's like, whoa, what's going to happen tonight? She's, she's looking forward to a great story. And I love the fact that verse 16 tells us that Ruth was able to explain everything. You know what? Next time you find yourself in a potentially compromising situation, next time you find yourself on the threshing floor in the middle of the night, ask yourself the question, could what I'm about to do tonight, could I explain it in full detail to my mother-in-law when I get home? That's a good test of God's will, right? That's a pretty good indication. If I'm able to come completely clean to to, to someone who has some level of uh, trust and authority over me, that, that's a good sense that I'm acting with a sense of integrity. Naomi warns us not to be passive, but Ruth warns us not to be compromised. But Boaz gets the last word. 
He warns us that when we're in need, not to be selfish. And this is so easy. It's easy to get consumed with what we want when we've got an agenda, when we've got needs. It's easy to just get consumed by them and not think of others. Boaz warns us not to be selfish. And he certainly could have been selfish. He might have asked Ruth for a one-night stand and just passed on the marriage offer. He also may have taken the marriage offer but passed on the kinsman legal thing. He could have passed on the obligation that he had to, uh, to, to, the, to offer something to her mother-in-law. But he gladly commits himself to all that she asked him. Even then, he might have let his needs for companionship cloud his judgment because notice what he says in verse 12. He says, and now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. See, he could have justified just moving ahead and cut some corners. Yeah, let, let's just take care of this marriage thing. There, there is some guy that's closer, but maybe we can avoid that. Maybe, maybe we can kind of cut him out of it. Maybe, maybe I just don't need to bring that up, and maybe no one will find out. The Israelite Redeemer law was based on near, nearness and blood relation, and there was another man who was one step closer than him in blood relation to Naomi. There's no trying to skirt the law with Boaz. He's not trying to shortcut anything. And he doesn't just tell Ruth, yeah, there's another guy and um, maybe tomorrow night you go to his threshing floor and you kind of pull the same routine again and try your luck. He doesn't do that. Boaz steps up, he takes full responsibility and he says, leave it with me, I'll go to him. I'll take care of all the negotiations and one way or another, one way or another, either I will marry you or he will marry you, but we will, we will uh, take care of everything that you've asked. He sends Ruth back to Naomi with his promise, but even then he can't, see, he can't do so without thinking of others. He, he's got to be thinking of his plan. He's got to be thinking of this negotiation, this other person. He, he, he's got to be wondering, it, will this lead to marriage? Will it not lead to marriage? And yet he's thinking of someone else. He realizes that people may wonder what Ruth is doing walking back empty-handed from the threshing floor. What's that woman been up to? People may misunderstand. And and he realizes that Naomi is in need. And she's the one who arrived in town back in chapter 1 and said, I went away full and the Lord has brought brought me back empty. And Boaz has heard about that. And so Boaz is determined to see that Naomi is empty no more. So in verse 15, he loads Ruth down with an enormous gift of barley, sends her home. It would provide a reason for her to have been at the threshing floor. She was picking up some of her her goods, and, and it provides Naomi with the fullness that she so longed for. What are you praying about these days? Who are you praying about these days? What are the things that God has placed on your heart? What are the needs that God has has put in your life? What are you praying about? In that area where you're praying, I'd encourage you to remember Naomi and to remember that you have a part to play. God wants to partner with you in this. Don't be passive in prayer. But if you're going to show some initiative, if you're going to adopt a new strategy, take on some counsel, 
You need to take on wise counsel and you need to be careful to show wisdom and restraint. Remember Ruth and resist compromise. God won't bless a plan that doesn't also honor him. And finally, remember Boaz because our needs don't give us permission to ignore the needs of others. They don't give us permission to be selfish. God still wants us to put our put our heads up and our eyes up to look around at others who may have even greater need. We can still be generous. We can still think of others. As you do, I want you to remember why the book of Ruth was written. It wasn't just written to tell us about some amazing people that lived a very long time ago. It was to offer us hope that God would send another redeemer, that God would send someone else who would provide the kind of redemption, salvation, rescue that Boaz would provide to Naomi and Ruth. God saw Naomi's pain. He saw Ruth's loss. He saw Boaz's burden. And he worked through their circumstances and actions to rescue each one of them in a unique way. But he did so to give us a picture of a redeemer who would come. It was ultimately a picture of Jesus Christ and, his, and the work that he would come to do. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't just pray about our sins? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't just stay in heaven and say, you know what, I can see that you're, you're dying to sin, that you're in bondage to your, your own nature, but I'm praying for you. I hope that goes well. Aren't you glad that he took initiative to come to us? to come into this world and to provide a salvation that could, could happen no other way? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't compromise when he was faced with temptation? Aren't you glad that he lived the perfect, sinless life that we haven't, that he stepped in when we didn't? Jesus faced hunger, thirst, pain, rejection. He faced torture. He faced humiliation. Aren't you glad that he didn't get lost in his own needs and his own problems and let those things keep him from a mission to rescue you and to rescue me? Don't imitate Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and say, I'm going to be just like them and ignore the Savior and the Redeemer that they point to. He's the one that came to rescue us He's the one that came to set us free. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the many ways that you shape our lives through prayer. It's so much more than just asking you about things and getting stuff. As we bring our needs to you, Father, help us to see our lives through your eyes. You want us to depend on you in prayer, but help us to join you in being part of the solution. To ask you, what's my part? What do you want me to do? Father, give us the strength to resist compromise and to live according to your word. To honor you with our lives. And to live out the grace and the generosity that we've received from you. For we ask you in the name of our great Redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen.